0: I got on that freight train. I tried to beat my way. Lord and rocks and gravel, Lord flew all in my face. I deconducted, let me write it blind. Okay, hey,
1: hey. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read uh, the major works of, of, of American Writers uh, using the Library of America as my source material. My goal is to fairly systematically go through as much of it as i can about 100 pages at a time giving my comments my ideas my thoughts and hopefully engaging with other readers of these great works of of world literature um, as i said way back in my first episode i think american literature really deserves to be seen as one of the is one of the greatest achievements of of humanity uh in the terms of art at least um, These in these episodes, we're studying Frank Norris's masterpiece, *The Octopus*. Um, It's a book about the ranchers of the San Joaquin Valley around 100 years ago and their struggles with the railroad. Um, I urge you to go back and listen to the first three episodes of this series to get the background uh, on the characters and the plot and the struggles. Essentially, the Ranchers are being squeezed by freight rates and the railroad's ownership of the land that they are farming. Uh, they try to organize it into a league to, to fight against them. And that, that's the main uh, tension in the story. Um, but for now, I'm going to start at Chapter 4 of Book 2 of The Octopus. As this chapter opens, we learn of the reception to Presley's poem, The Toilers. Uh, he had earlier in the novel wanted to write an epic of the West, which was, I guess, more more populist in the sense that it wanted to present the, the common folk of the West as the settlers, as the conquerors of the West. He throws all that away because he thinks it's childish and not very political, and he instead adopts this uh, socialistic um, tale, epic poem called The Toilers. It's actually revealed as this chapter opens to be to been widely read and commented on. Um, He was talked into publishing this work in a newspaper, not in a literary magazine. And as a result, it does become kind of news. it gets spread around. But we also learn the limits of art to affect society because nothing really changes. And and let me just come out with this. This is Presley's importance to this novel. Um, You might think that he's Norris's point of view. I don't think he is, you know, because he's an artist and Norris is an artist. That's not what he's there. Um, you might think he's there as kind of the moral center, and I don't think he's that either. What Presley's significance of this novel is, is the failure of art, the failure of the poet, the failure of the the writer or the, the painter or whatever, the musician, to affect change in society. Uh, the octopus, the enemy, the railroad in this case, is essentially unstoppable. It's, it's a natural force. Um, we'll develop that over the next two episodes, especially in the last episode, about what all that means. But um, there's really not any clear way that art can can fix things for our characters, for the, for the ranchers. And that's the importance of Presley. And it's really clear at this point that no matter how many people read the toilers, it's not going to change one thing about freight rates or ownership of land or the Supreme Court or any of the other things that the ranchers are really relying on. At this point, several of our characters are brooding, Uh, Mrs. Dyke uh, is worried that her son is ruined. And in fact, he is. Um, The details of that are in the last episode. Um, Dyke himself has committed himself to a violent resistance. He's he's become a drinker um, and he's been seduced by the bartender's anarchism. And he becomes committed to the idea that violent resistance to the railroad is the only thing that will work. He says at one point that the only thing the railroad understands is dynamite. Um, of course, at the turn of the century, anarchism in Europe and America was influenced by this idea called propaganda of the deed, this idea that some kind of big event, a, a, an assassination or a bombing of a, of a certain place will kind of be the spark that will start a, a revolution. Um, and, you know, several major heads of states were actually assassinated by anarchists in this time, Tsar uh, Alexander III, um, President William McKinley, there's some others too, I don't remember them all. Um, Now, so Dyke is kind of ruined and there's a cloud over his head and he's getting more and more pushed to to crime and terrorism as um, his solution. Uh, Magnus Derrick, our our representation of kind of the old feudal system, he has a cloud over his head too because his morality has been undercut because he has bribed officials. Um, And there's a long section where we just see how bad he's gotten. This is on page 893 of the Library of America edition of The Octopus. Osterman was right. The governor had aged suddenly. His former erectness was gone. The broad shoulders stooped a little. The strong lines of his thin-lipped mouth were relaxed, and his hand, as it collapsed over the yellowed ivory knob of his cane, had an unwanted tremulousness, not hitherto noticeable. But the change in magnus was more than physical. At last, in the full tide of power, president of the League, known and talked of it in any country of the state, leader in a great struggle, consulted, deferred to as the prominent man, at length attaining his position, so long and vainly sought for, yet he found no pleasure in his triumph, and little but bitterness in life. His success had come by devious methods, and been reached by obscure means. So, and it goes on, it goes on in the next page, there's like two whole pages here of just Magnus brooding about the loss of his reputation, um, due to having bribed officials. Now we shift to happier news after this, when Annixter is finally able to confess his love for uh, the lovely Hilma tree. He gets her to agree to marry him, which is what he decided he wanted in the previous chapter. They marry soon after. It's something that Norris just rushes over. He doesn't really dwell on it. Um, It's not because he can or doesn't want to. He had a whole chapter in McTeague about a wedding ceremony, and he spent a long time on the courtship. Maybe he thought, I've already done that in McTeague, and I don't need to do it here. More likely, it's just not really essential to the plot that we we get into it. We know where Annixter ended up in falling in love with Hilma and then choosing to marry her. So it's kind of a quick thing. Um, In fact, part of this is he wants to get Annixter on a Norris. It means wants to get Annixter on a train, really, to place him for some crucial events that are going to come shortly. So they marry and they soon begin trying to prepare their household, buying things and, you know, feminizing it for for Hilma, getting the things she wants into his home. Much of this chapter takes place on a train ride back to Kiensabe after the honeymooners, after a, honey, a short honeymoon and a shopping trip in the city, and they're bringing back the stuff uh, for the Kiensabe ranch. There's some humor here. Annexter is really awkward about taking on the responsibilities of a husband. He doesn't really seem to know what to do. And there's a moment when Hilma is starting to feel ill, you know, from the motion sickness, or maybe she's just coming down with something. I, I sort of forgot. But Annexter is. Super awkward in this uh, part of the tale uh, because he really doesn't know what to do. He's trying to nurse her and, and she's like, oh, I you know, I, I don't need help. And he feels that he needs to do something because he's the father. It's kind of funny. Um, he doesn't really realize uh, that women don't always need men to, to help them. Now, at some point during all this, the train has stopped and we get the Great Vine Telegraph taken over because rumors start to go around. Like, why did the train stop? Was there something on the road? We're we under attack, blah, 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 whatever. Finally, news gets back to Annexter about what really happened. It's revealed that the person who stopped the train was actually Dyke, uh, the ruined hop farmer and former engineer Dyke. He's taken to robbing the train. His goal is to actually rob the, not the train in general, not the passengers, but the wealth in the train uh, that belongs to the PNSW Railroad. And he's quite good at it. The plan is a success. It's quite brilliantly performed for for one man to hijack a train this way. He makes off with about $5,000, which is exactly the same amount of money that uh, Trina uh, inherited in the book McTeague, which I reviewed in previous episodes. I don't know if that was intentional, um, but there it is. He makes off with $5,000 of the railroad's money. Unfortunately, he was forced to kill a railroad railroad employee in doing this, so he's a murderer now, not just a thief. Dyke gets away, but he's pursued. Now, at some point, because the train stopped and people ask and there's reporters there um, who investigate and want to get the story out there of what happened, Annixter is asked about his opinion of the situation. And in good fashion, uh, like we might expect from this character, Annixter, he uses this as a chance to condemn the railroad and lay blame on the railroad for what happened. So this is quoting Annixter on page 914. Uh, yes, you and your gang drove Dyke from his job because he wouldn't work for starvation wages. You raised the freight rates on him and robbed him of all he had. You ruined him and drove him to f- fill himself up with Karaher's whiskey. He's only taken back what you plundered of him. And now you're going to hound him all over the state, hunt him down like a wild animal, and bring him to the gallows at San Quentin. That's my version of the affair, Mr. Genslinger but it's worth your subsidy from the PNSW to print it. So, pretty bitter. Um, Annixter was friends to Dyke. Uh, I wouldn't say they were close, but Annixter did at several points try to warn him about the railroad to make sure he understood the freight rates before he got into any contracts. And Dyke was a little bit too trusting of the railroads. In fact, had he listened to uh, Annixter more, um, I don't think he might have made wiser choices. Uh, now, this isn't the end of Dyke's story though So let's just set it aside for now Back at Kia, um, back at Sabi, Annixter settled in with, with Hilma Tree, is, or Hilma Annixter now I guess is His wife And he decides to take in Dyke's mother and daughter um, Dyke was living with his mother and his daughter um, This is the moment where we really see Annixter as a changed man um, It's not just selflessness, it's not just love It's not just his desire to have Hilma as his wife that changes his character he's fundamentally a changed person he's fully committing to the community he's a part of he's not just an individual rancher one of many self-interested joining the league to ensure that his wealth is protected he chooses at this point to be part of the community to be part of the league in every way not just as a um, not just as a self-interested member the annexter from early in their novel probably wouldn't have made such a commitment to help a family in hard times. He may have had sympathy for them, um, but maybe not. In fact, for the first time we meet Annixter. he's firing someone um, for selfish reasons. Now, bad news for the league comes when Lyman Derrick, who is the man the league put on the Railroad Commission, reports back about the freight rates. Essentially, what we learn is that the league gets nothing of what it wanted. An average rate of 10% is cut uh, on the route to the Pacific and Southwestern Railroad, the PNSW. But the rates for the largest wheat producing areas, particularly the San Joaquin Valley, are unchanged. The rates were cut only on minor routes. Lyman preaches patience. He tells everyone that, you know, this stuff takes a long time. We're not going to get, you can't get, you know, everything right away. It's a long process. You know, there's got to be negotiations, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Magnus, there, but, however, publicly disowns us some as being a traitor to the family and for being an undercover agent of their enemy, the railroads. Um, the League will, of course, have none of this, and they're shouting him down. And there's an interesting contrast here of how Magnus, Derek, and Annixter both respond to uh, Lyman's, essentially his, the, his betrayal. Um, Magnus says this, Lyman, I abjure you. I demand of you, as you are my son and an honorable man, who explain yourself. What is there behind all this? Is it no longer as chairman of the committee I speak to you? A member of the railroad commission? It is your father who speaks, and I address you as my son. Do you understand the gravity of this crisis? Do you realize the responsibility of your position? Do you not see the importance of this moment? Explain yourself. So he gets all puffed up and moralistic. And this is summing up the character of Magnus Derek. He sees everything in these black-and-white moral terms. Um, Annixter's response is a lot more fun. Uh, it starts on the next page, on page 932. Liar! shouted Annixter. Liar and bribe-eater! You are bought and paid for! And with the words, his arm seemed almost to leap out of his shoulder. Lyman received the blow squarely in his face, and the force of it sent him staggering backwards towards the wall. He tripped over his... and fell halfway, his back supported against the closed door of the room. Magnus sprang forward. His son had been struck, and the instincts of a father rose up in an instant protest, rose for a moment, then forever dived away in his heart. He checked the words that flashed in his mind. He lowered his upraised arms. No, he had but one son. The poor, staggering creature with the fine clothes, white face, and blood-streaked lip was no longer his. A blow could not dishonor him more than he had dishonored himself. So there's the contrast. Uh, Magnus, still seeing it in moral terms, seeing the betrayal in, in, as personal. Annixter just realizes the truth that he was bribed. Um, he, you know, Magnus is morally offended that his son betrayed the family, while Annixter knows very well that the betrayal is all just part of the game. Um, now, it, I guess it's symbolically important that Annixter chooses violence at this point, because it's also at this point in the book where the League turns militant. And this brings us, gets us into chapter five of book, two uh, of the octopus this chapter opens with the league turning militant trying to organize a militia that they hope can mobilize at a moment's notice 600 men they realize they can't do much about the freight rates um, because their effort to corrupt the commission and to get those lower freight rates failed um, but they can still arm themselves in hopes of stopping the dummy buyers of their farm from taking over their lands so um by this point of the story, the league is, is pretty much made up of illegal squatters. And let me just briefly review what's going on here. Um, and I think it goes back to the Homestead Act of, of 1863. Oh, My daughter just came in and I had to, you know, go deal with her. Um, anyways, where was I? Oh, the, the issue. So the ownership of these lands, I think go back to the Homestead Act, where a lot of land was given to the railroads um, to basically as corporate welfare to help them, you know, build the roads. Uh, especially the roads along the routes that were where the rail lines were built. Of course that was prime land for farmers to have because they wanted really to be close to the railroads. These particular ranches are right on uh, the PNSW railroad land. So much of the physical you know ranch themselves are technically owned by the railroad. They were promised to sell that land to the ranchers who were working that land at two dollars and fifty an acre. But when the land came up for sale they made two betrayals. The first is they raised the price to twenty or thirty dollars an acre, and second, they opened up buying to anyone. Well, what this meant is essentially the railroad could set up dummy buyers to buy that land um, and steal the crop and the land from the the tenants, or well, not, I guess they're not tenants, the the squatters. So that's the issue here, and it's it's a real existential threat to the ranchers, certainly. So here they are. They're mobilizing. They're they're ready to throw down and you know fight. Uh, literally preparing to shoot off people. But, I mean, the hope is that by mobilizing a militia, they can stop the occupation of their of their lands. Um, Magnus Derrick is confronted by the journalist Genslinger. and We met him in the previous chapter. He was interviewing Annexter about the, the dike raid. Um, he works for the railroad influence newspaper, the Bonneville Mercury. And here the name is, of course, very symbolic. The Mercury, you know, the god of travel and commerce and and all that stuff uh, being associated with the railroad. He tells Magnus that he knows about the bribery that took place during the election and even is providing details of how the bribery was done, you know, like the secret message, the methods they used to kind of under the table deliver the money to the people they were trying to bribe. Magnus is totally humiliated at this, of, of course. Uh, it's bad enough that he had to be part of this bribery, but he's mostly fearful of exposure. His biggest fear is being found out as a briber. Gensinger solicits a bribe from Magnus Derrick amounting to about $10,000. And he promises not to publish the article if he could get him part of that and promise the rest later. This is actually a massive bribe by the way. Uh, if you were to convert this to modern currency, it's about a quarter of a million dollars. Um, so U.S. dollars. Really a huge amount. And Magnus's psychological state begins to rapidly decline um, at this point. Um I mean, he's not even keeping his family life. Uh, This is on page 943. Wednesday passed, and Thursday, Magnus kept to himself, seeing no visitors, avoiding even his family. How to break through the mesh of the net? How to regain the old position? How to prevent discovery? If there was only some way, some vast superhuman effort by which he could rise in his old strength once more, crushing Lyman with one hand, Genslinger with the other, and for one more moment, the last, to stand supreme again, indomitable, the leader, then go to his death triumphant at the end, his memory untarnished, his fame undimmed. But the plague spot was in himself, knitted forever into the fabric of his being. Though Genslinger, though Genslinger could be silenced, though Lyman could be crushed, though even the league should overcome the railroad, though he should be acknowledged leader of a resplendent victory, yet the plague spot would remain. There was no success for him now. However conspicuous an outward achievement, he—he he himself, Magnus Derrick had failed miserably and irredeemably um so we've actually seen several characters essentially meet the end of their arc uh i would argue uh Baname is there uh, go back to the previous episode where his kind of arc ends annexed is there in a lot of ways dyke is certainly there too so we, we've seen a lot of characters meet in full end. and here's kind of where magnus meets his end he realizes that even if he wins his identity as this moral man as this great leader is is destroyed um for all intents and purposes, he's defeated. Uh, meanwhile, Presley has become influenced by anarchism um, through his conversations with the bartender, Carraher. It is, this, this is the same man who convinced Dyke to resort to violence to get back at the railroad. And we get a nice little speech um, from Presley's point of view. By degrees, Presley had come to consider Carraher in a more favorable light. He found, to his immense astonishment, that Caragher knew something of Mill and Bakunin, not, however, from the books, but from the extracts and quotations from their writings reprinted in the anarchist journals to which he subscribed. More than once, the two had held long conversations, and from Caragher's own lips Presley heard the terrible story of the death of his wife, who had been accidentally killed by Pinkertons during a demonstration of strikers. It invested the saloon-keeper, in Presley's imagination, with all the dignity of a tragedy. He could not blame Kerr for being a red. He even wondered how it was the saloon keeper had not put these theories into practice and adjusted his ancient wrong with the six inches of plugged gas pipe. Um, So there it is. Of course, the Pinkertons referenced here were uh, the private security company often hired by businesses to break strikes or investigate on union activity. And they're just all around nasty guys. Uh, Certainly the bad guys of American labor history. Presley is beginning to become exposed here as a lot, you know, as being a bit of full of hot air and quite impressionable. He can afford to be an intellectual tourist. Let's be frank. You know, he he's kind of going through these different phases. The, the kind of the pompous populism of his epic of wheat, followed by his socialism of the toilers. Now he's getting influenced by anarchism. He's an intellectual tourist. And he, yeah, and like I said, he can afford to be a tourist. He doesn't he doesn't have a stake in the fight. Um, and this is the, this is the heart of what's going to destroy Presley as, as a character by the end of the novel. Um, the world is falling around them. Um, and with the world falling around them, it's nice to see Annixter begin to explore how his marriage to Hilma has changed his life. And he expresses this to Presley and he talks about how, uh, he confesses, we've already seen this as, as readers, but he confesses it openly to Presley, how just being married to this woman, Hilma. Really made him a better man. As he's talking to to Presley about this, Dyke arrives. He's on the run from a posse run by Delaney. And now, Delaney is a former hand of the Sabe Ranch, fired by Annixter early, like in Chapter 2 or something. Annixter offers him aid, but Dyke has to stay on the run. After a chase, they corner Dyke, and there's a really nice action sequence here where Dyke is fighting the posse, trying to escape. He has a chance at one moment to shoot S. Behrman. So he basically surrenders himself to being captured, but he's hoping he can get a shot off, kill S. Behrman. He's the main mill- villain of the novel. He's the main voice of the PNSW. He's the one who really pl- plotted the downfall of the ranchers. He's, he's the bad guy. Um, but Dyke's gun misfires and Dyke is captured. Um, now, this is going to be a theme in the later half of the part of the novel, really the last maybe... 200 pages or so, is that Esperman Behrman is, is indestructible. Um, and this is Norris's way of reminding us that the railroad itself is indestructible. It cannot be stopped by violence or any other legal means. And everything that's done to Behrman fails. Um, and here's an example of, of violence failing. And it's not going to be the last time that violence fails to defeat Esperman. Behrman. Um, of course, we feel bad for Dyke, but um, he, his capture is, is necessary to the plot. Um, So this brings us to chapter six, book two, which is the climax of the novel. Um, But really brilliantly, I think Norris begins with a long uh, rest period. We we get our eyes, our, our feelings are get to rest a little bit because, you know, there's been a lot of hardcore stuff earlier in this chapter but we get a nice moment um, and it's not the first time in this novel we had like annixter's barn raising celebration earlier this chapter starts out kind of like this it's another community event um, here the event is the mass killing of jackrabbits, uh, and yes it's maybe hard for modern audiences to read this and not think animal cruelty or something but it's a necessary act because of the overpopulation of these of these rabbits Um, And Norris presents it as really a community effort you know once a year when the rabbit population gets too high you know the ranchers and the hands and everyone gets together and you know it's a community celebration to to one level but it's also this important work of all working together to round up these thousands of rabbits and and kill them. Now, this is, of course, a theme of the novel. It's the weakness of the community against the power of a foreign external threat, in this case, the railroad. But even on the brink of its defeat, Norris wants to dwell in this community, show the community's capacity for solidarity and cooperation, and and remind us, I think he's doing this, I think he's trying to remind us of what's being lost by this kind of um, acceptance, blind acceptance of the railroads. Now, this doesn't mean he thinks there's an easy way out for these communities he, he is kind of fatalistic throughout this novel but he wants to show us what's being lost and much of the final part of the novel is devoted to reminding us again and again what's lost um, but there you know it's a, it's a nice moment and you can look at it it's it's it makes up actually much of chapter six of book two um, so while this is going on this this i don't want to say a party but it's it's a community effort while it's going on, the ranchers get news that the railroad w- has moved to seize the Quien Sabe Ranch, uh, which had been bought up by dummy buyers for the railroads. Um, and so they organize with the goal of protecting the Los Muertos Ranch, which they fear is going to be the next to be seized by these um, dummy buyers. Instead of the 600 men that uh, Magnus Derrick had hoped would come, only nine arrive. It's, it's a really hasty effort. They don't really have time to get everyone together. Some people don't show up. The people who come are Magnus Derrick, his son, Heron, Derek, Annexter is there. Hooven, the German tenant on the Derek's farm. Um, another rancher, Osterman. And then there's three other ranchers in Presley. Um, and Presley is sent away. So we essentially have like nine people there uh, instead of 600. Without the support of the entire league, it seems unlikely that they'll be victorious. But they do set up to defend Sabi. They block the road. They try to They get reports of the dummy buyers and their, their posse coming up the road. So they're set up to defend it. A standoff comes. So we have this kind of Western standoff. The ranchers are numbered by quite a lot, but neither side really wants a confrontation. I mean, they're not out to really murder each other, but, you know, if it had been 600 people, you know, maybe it would have been a different story, but it's only nine. Um, at some point, an animal recoils, is scared, and this throws one of the ranchers off to the ground. Hooven Reads this as a sign that fighting and shooting has begun. So he shoots. In a very quick battle, that probably takes only seconds, the League is defeated very easily. Um, Annixter is killed instantly. Um, Heron Derek is dead. Hooven is killed. The Rancher Osterman is wounded. So thus, much of the leadership of the Ranchers League, the most militant and active members of the Ranchers League, is wiped out. Um, really in just a few seconds. This is essentially the end of the resistance to the railroad. Magnus Derrick was already deeply wounded by his discovery of his, that is bribery. He, and now he's lost his son. Uh, he's lost his other son through treachery. Um, and he's basically become a shell of his former self. He's kind of out of the picture for all intents and purposes. And Ekstra is dead as well. So both the moral and the militant sides of the League are done in, in one moment. The final three chapters of The Octopus will wrap things up for these characters. Norse will not allow us a moment of peace. Um, These are going to be some of the most brutal chapters in American literature, at least that I've come across. Um, We watch as the train of progress runs over a community that we have fallen in love with. and uh, Not just defeat, but really dig into the ground, these people. Um, But that will be a story for... uh, the next episode, the final 100 pages of The Octopus. Thank you so much for for listening. If you enjoyed this, please rate, subscribe, share, comment on it. I'd love to hear your comments about your experience reading The Octopus or or what you've learned from this episode. Um, If you want to contact me directly, you can do so at 100 at gmail.com and I'll respond to you there. Um, So with that, um, I will sign off. Thank you so much for listening.
0: I dig God, let me ride it blind. What did he say? Lord is your goodness, training none of mine.